Olaso. So this afternoon, we move to the fourth of the four immeasurables. I'd like to give a very short introduction and then go to the practice. In a way, the fourth of the four measurables, upeksha or equanimity, is the culmination. It sounds like a little bit perhaps as an uh, anticlimax. Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, uh, equanimity. You know. But in fact, it's not at all anticlimax. It's really the, the final flowering, the fruition, the perfection of all the preceding three. But for this, spending a little bit of time on the words is nor enormously, I think, very important. And that is, we have this one term, upeksha, in Sanskrit. The Pali is almost the same, upeka. And I'll stick with the general translation. It is equanimity, but it's very important to recognize what it is and is not. In Buddhist terminology, this one term, upeksha, that we translate well as equanimity, has three entirely different meanings. Very different, okay? But the same word. So on the one hand, upeksha means simply resting in equanimity without doing anything, without being interactive, engaged, responding, okay? So I'll give an example. On the nine stages of shamatha, when you get to the eighth stage, so you're very, very far along the path, at that point, neither, subtle, neither even subtle laxity or subtle excitation will arise. You're free of them. Therefore, when it comes to introspection, which in a way interrupts the flow of mindfulness. You remember? I'm att attending mindful, 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 and then int introspection comes in, it breaks that flow, so there's a cost-benefit analysis, right? Is it more beneficial to break the flow a little bit so I don't go off and be wandering for five or ten seconds? And for the first seven stages, it is beneficial to interrupt the flow of mindfulness somewhat, because Otherwise, laxity or excitation may really persist. By the time you get to the eighth stage, eighth stage, even subtle laxity, subtle excitation no longer arise. There's no danger. Therefore, if you break the flow of mindfulness, there is the cost of breaking the flow, and there's no benefit because there's nothing to look for. The problem is solved for the time being. So that's a type of upeksha, equanimity, just, okay, let it be, okay. Nothing to be done, so just rest in your own peace, right? That's one type. Now, I think sometimes the fourth immeasurable is mistaken with another type of upeksha, and this is a terrible error. And as upeksha, the translation equanimity in English, it normally refers to a feeling of equanimity. I'm not particularly happy, not sad, I'm not feeling craving or aversion, I just feel equanimity, equal. So no special, nothing special. Just feel even. That's the feeling of equanimity. And we have it many, many times a day when we're not feeling particularly happy or sad, just neutral. And that goes for the body. How does the body feel? Okay. Not in pain, not pleasant, just fine, neutral. So we have neutral feelings in the body, neutral feelings in the mind. But the fourth immeasurable is definitely not that. It's not just a feeling of equanimity with respect to everybody who comes in, meeting all different types of sentient beings, just feeling totally indifferent. That is not the fourth immeasurable. Okay? And those of you who have had the good fortune to meet people who are, have really tremendous spiritual maturity, I mean real depth, people like the Dalai Lama, Dingo Kensin Rinpoche, Kalur Rinpoche, and, and the list goes on and on. That's the last thing you see from them is just... Mm, 
Hello? Hello? Hi? You know, they're absolutely not. Right? Absolutely not. So that has a role, but this is not, that feeling of equanimity is not what is being cultivated in the fourth immeasurable. Okay? The fourth immeasurable, still called Upeksha, now in this particular regard, actually a closer translation would be impartiality. Impartiality. But I'll stick with equanimity because most people use it just as long as we know what it means. And so what does this equanimity or impartiality as the fourth immeasurable refer to? It refers to an evenness, because Tang Nyom in Tibetan suggests an evenness, an evenness of one's sense of caring for others. An evenness of caring for others, right? Whether they are pleasant to look at or not so pleasant. Whether their personalities are pleasant or not pleasant. Their behavior is agreeable or not agreeable. It's looking through that. So this is what's referring, being referred to here is something very deep and very important. And I'll try to cho- choose a few, few words because I'm also eager to get to the meditation. But I think the terminology of the Jewish existential philosopher, how do you say, nails this or really gets to it as well as anyone else I've seen. It comes from the German but in English translation. What is being remedied in this cultivation of equanimity is what Martin Buber called the I-it relationship. The I-it relationship, where we simply look on other sentient beings, human beings and other types of sentient beings, as objects. Agreeable objects, indifferent objects, and disagreeable objects. So it's very much like treating sentient beings as if you've just gone for dinner and you're looking at all the food there, laid out in the cafeteria. And you see, oh, that looks good. That looks okay. That, I don't think so. So... I eat relationship with food is no problem. There's no reason to eat food that you think would be untasty or unhealthy for you. So of course you choose that which has a good taste and is healthy, especially healthy. And then maybe you take that which is neutral and then you avoid that which you really don't like the taste or really is not good for you. Maybe you're allergic to it. So an I eat relationship to food is fine. To buying an automobile is fine. To things, because this, a wristwatch, is an it. So treat a wristwatch as an it, exactly correct. You're being realistic. But to treat any sentient being, and for the time being I'll focus on human beings, to focus on any human being as an it is literally dehumanizing. Because then we're dealing only with surfaces. And this is what I really love about this. If we take a wristwatch, we can say the wristwatch is only surfaces. There's nothing more to the wristwatch than surfaces. Surface, right? You get that surface? Okay, but peel off the front part. It's still surface. And peel off more and more and more until you have the back surface. But it was surfaces all the way through. There's nothing to a wristwatch other than object. Surface appearances. There's nothing more to it. Whereas for any sentient being, as we attend to the appearance of the person, we see a visual form. The person speaks, we hear, we, we get an appearance the quality of the person's voice, what the person says, we get appearances. But an appearance is never a human being. Simple thing. The difference between a wristwatch and a sentient being, let's take a human being, is a human being, somebody's looking back. It's just that simple. Someone's looking back. 
and whether they happen to be appearing in agreeable fashion or disagreeable fashion, the most important thing about sentient beings is they're looking back, that they're subjects, as we are. So in short, and then I think I want to go right to the practice, the cultivation of, of equanimity is getting real. It's just getting real. It's getting realistic. With respect to sentient beings, recognizing sentient beings, of course, sentient beings, some appear very attractive, some less attractive, some personalities, behavior attractive. Of course, that's true. No question. That's the objective displays of human beings. But a human being is not an objective display. A human being is a subject. And we all know what its subject is like because each of, is, each of us is one. So in cultivating equanimity, we're attending to the reality of the subject that is present where every sentient being is. And the most important element of that subject is, I really think it's actually the most important, is that each one like ourselves is wishing for happiness. It's the most important thing. And wishing to be free of suffering. And attending to that, then no matter how the person appears as one of the most grotesque people, most evil people in history, the most saintly and, and virtuous people of history, most beautiful person in the world that appears on the cover of People magazine, or the ugliest person in the world who never appears on any magazine. You know, whatever, there is the common ground, the common ground. This person, like myself, wishes for happiness, and wishes to be free of suffering. And it's not only true for human beings, but all sentient beings. And equanimity is simply attending to that reality. So it's getting real. That's what equanimity is all about. Okay? So let's have an exercise and a, a, a meditation here. This I'm drawing from the Tibetan tradition here, the in Indian and Tibetan tradition, which I find very, very useful. And it's like a controlled experiment. So we don't often do this, but this is a controlled experiment. I mentioned, I think, earlier, was it this morning or yesterday, that we can, in fact, regulate emotions. That is, we can start thinking, you know, we can, we can focus on someone we really dislike and then generate a sense of anger or aversion. We can do that. And so in a controlled experiment, as if in a laboratory, what I'll invite you to do in this meditation is bring to mind a person who, by attending to this person, a person that you really find very agreeable, for which attachment and desire, and it doesn't have to be sexual desire, maybe that, but it can simply be real strong attachment. This person really makes me happy. It could be a friend, it could be your child, it could be, a, it could be any kind of person. But where the attachment comes out, oh, this person really makes me happy. My happiness is dependent on this person. I really like this person. And so it's attachment. Because this person is such an agreeable object, right? And allow that attachment and craving to arise in a controlled experiment. And then we'll go to the neutral, and then we will go to the negative, where I'll invite you to bring someone to mind that when you dwell on this person, and I'll invite you to do this in a very controlled laboratory setting, reflect upon the really disagreeable, disgusting, contemptuous qualities of this person and allow the aversion to arise. Ugh. Like you almost want to go, <coughs> you know, really don't like. And allow that aversion to arise, temporarily. And then we'll work with that, okay? Attachment, we'll go to indifference. Flat out, I really don't care one way or another. That's the feeling of indifference. And then aversion. And then try to penetrate all through, through all three, okay? Let's get to work.
But we begin, as always, with an act of kindness for ourselves by gently letting the awareness descend into the body and settling the body in its natural state, its ground state balanced between relaxation and vigilance, sustained with stillness. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, taking advantage of every out-breath as an opportunity to relax the tension in the body, to release the breath, and happily let go of any thoughts that have arisen as you rest your awareness in the present moment. and settle your mind with the same qualities. Setting your mind at ease, releasing all cares and concerns, hopes and fears about the past and future. Letting your awareness come to rest in stillness in the present moment, so relaxed that it's not moved to drift away to the past or future. Let the natural clarity of your awareness illuminate the sensations of the breath and for a little while calm the obsessively discursive mind with mindfulness of breathing, just for a little while.
in our practices of shamatha, we rest mostly in a passive mode of awareness, resting in the cognizance of awareness. But now let's complement such practices by drawing on the luminosity, the creativity, the imagination, the memory, all of these qualities of awareness, the more dynamic mode. So as we venture into the meditative cultivation of equanimity, let's first of all bring to mind each of us individually, a person whom you know quite well, if at all possible, someone you know well, but for whom you have no special feelings of either attachment or aversion. No clear sense that your well-being is in any meaningful way dependent on this person. The person appears neither particularly agreeable nor disagreeable. See if you can call such a person to mind, preferably one whom you know well, but for whom you know have no strong feelings one way or another, mostly just indifference. As you attend to the person in this way, you are attending to what we may call a neutral object in an I-it relationship. This person has probably not helped you in any particular way or hindered you or harmed you in any particular way. Appears neither agreeable nor disagreeable. So much for appearances. This relationship with this person, one of indifference, is so fleeting. It arises in dependence upon the kinds of encounters you've had with this person in the past, which have had very little impact on your emotional life. But all such relationships are in a state of flux. This is inevitable. Enemies become friends, friends become strangers. Strangers become enemies or friends, all in a state of flux. And that in this particular phase, this person is neither friend nor foe. But what is constant in the continuing flux, the ever-changing nature of our relationships with others, what is constant? 
as you attend closely to this person now as a subject, attend to the reality that this person has hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, pleasures and pains, just as you do. Every bit is real. Every bit is important. Attend closely to this reality, drawing on your ability, your capacity of imagination, but imagining that which is real. practical way, each of us here is at the center of our world. We look in all directions and we see we are indeed in the center of our own personal world. And as this is true for ourselves, so of course, is this true for the person you've brought to mind? This person is central in the center of his or her mandala, world of experience. As you imagine gazing into this person's eyes, look deeply enough where you can see yourself or someone just like yourself. And as you wish for freedom from suffering for yourself, as you wish for happiness for yourself, With each out-breath, breathe out the aspiration of loving-kindness. May you, like myself, be well and happy. in-breath, imagine drawing in this person's troubles, sufferings and pains. Imagine breathing in the darkness of this person's distress and dissolving it into the light at your heart. With a wish, may you be free of suffering and its causes.
Then allow the appearance of this person to dissolve back into the space of your mind. And now to your left, just a bit to the left, bring to mind a person for whom you do feel strong attachment. This a person appears very agreeable to you. Perhaps the person's appearance alone, attractive, agreeable, pleasant. The person's voice, the person's behavior, the person's attitude. Imagine invoking the person, him or herself, not just a display of appearances, but attend to the person and dwell for a little while on the qualities that make this person so agreeable, such that you may feel my happiness really depends on this person. This person gives me such happiness. I want this person in my life and I want you to give me happiness. I need you to give me happiness. And allow attachment to arise for this most agreeable person. Sometimes the attachment is expressed very vividly when it's a sexual attraction, for example, being expressed as, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Clearly a pure objectification of another human being. Allow this objectification to arise. You may feel this person is the most wonderful thing in your life. And now look through the appearances. Strangers become loved ones, loved ones become strangers, all in a constant state of flux. Due to your way of engaging with this person, there's a phase of this person being the object of attachment. It wasn't always so, and it will not always be so. This too will change. Again, what is constant? This person every day of his or her life wakes up and wishes to find happiness, 
wakes up, wishes to be free of suffering, just like yourself, never wishes for a miserable day, an angry, a frustrated day, a day of physical pain. Attend closely now, especially if you know this person well. What are this person's aspirations, this person's hopes and fears? Attend to the subject. each in-breath. Arouse the yearning. May you be free of suffering, free of fear, free of the causes of suffering. Breathe in this person's troubles in the form of a dark cloud dissolving into the radiant orb of light, symbolizing your own pristine awareness. With each in-breath, arouse this aspiration of compassion. like myself, be free of suffering and its causes. With each out-breath arouse the yearning of loving-kindness, may you, like myself, find happiness. May your aspirations, your most meaningful aspirations, be fulfilled. May you find the joy you seek and cultivate the causes of such genuine happiness and breathe out the light of loving-kindness from your heart. Suffuse this person with this light of loving-kindness with every out-breath. Allow the appearance of this person to dissolve back into the space of the mind. And then to your right, 
bring to mind a person vividly that you find very disagreeable. This person may have treated you badly, harmed you. Or maybe it's just the person's appearance, the person's disposition, the person's overall behavior, but there's just something about this person you can't stand. Or simply find disagreeable. Dwell on these disagreeable qualities. What is it that makes this person so repugnant? And allow the aversion to arise. No doubt about it. The way this person appears to your mind is very disagreeable. True enough. This too is a phase. You weren't born with this person feeling, dis- feeling distaste or aversion for this person when you were born. In this particular phase, this person appears perhaps as the enemy, at least as a disagreeable person. It wasn't always so, it will not always be so. Enemies become friends on occasion, or they just fade into the past, a distant memory. Look through this transient veil of appearances, highly selective, in no way impartial, in no way complete, and tend to attend to the reality. This person, like yourself, is doing his or her own best to find happiness and freedom from suffering. Whether the methods are skillful or unskillful, the yearning is there. May I be free of suffering, may I find happiness. Just like each of us here. As you imagine gazing into this person's eyes, gaze deeply enough that you can see someone just like yourself, in no way better or worse. 
simply a person wishing to be happy, to suffer less. With compassion, breathe in the suffering of the other. With loving kindness, breathe out the light of joy, the light of loving kindness. Allow the appearance of this person to dissolve back into the space of the mind. And for just a little while, with each out-breath, breathe out the aspiration, the loving and affectionate aspiration. May we all be free of attachment and aversion for those whom we regard as close and those who are distant. May we all be free and breathe out this light of loving kindness and compassion. Then release all appearances and all objects to the mind, release all aspirations, and let your awareness come to rest in its own place for just a moment. Rest in the awareness of awareness.
And let's bring the session to a close. When I first settled into Dharmasala, India, in 1971, I had two wonderful teachers who complemented each other perfectly. I went there because the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives was just opening and classes were being held under the auspices of the Dalai Lama. And the Lama that I'd been training under in Switzerland before ever going to India said, oh, if this is under the auspices of the Dalai Lama, you definitely go there. So I went. And so six days a week, six days a week, then Geshe Ngao and Taige gave these wonderful teachings. Uh, just really, really quite wonderful teachings on the Lamrim, Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, Ornament for Clear Realization, just laid out the panoramic view of Buddha Dharma, both in theory and in practice. So it was very systematic, very regular. But just around the same time, just oh, within weeks of my arriving there, then Geshe Rapten, who was the yogi up on the hill, he had completed his Geshe, accomplished scholar, great debater, uh, a consultant, doctrinal consultant for the Dalai Lama. He was the yogi up on the hill. So he lived in this little cow shed up in the mountains, living in complete simplicity like a beggar, you know. And he was up there meditating. He spent six years up there meditating in this little hut. I don't think it even had electricity. Maybe, maybe electricity, nothing else. One little light bulb, that was it. And so, I must say, there was those very romantic days because just weeks after I arrived, then he gave his first public teaching. For some months, maybe even a year or two before I arrived, individual Westerners would go up there and they would receive just one-on-one -on -one a bit of guidance from him. But it was tough because his interpreter didn't speak much English. Hardly anybody back then was bilingual. But they'd get a little bit. But then one Westerner asked him for teachings on the preliminary practices. And I'm sure that sure Geshe Rapnin consulted with His Holiness. What do you say? Shall I teach these people? And His Holiness specifically fingered him and said, I want you to teach these Westerners. Geshe Ngantagi was giving the daily fare, you know, down on the library. He'd been chosen by the Dalai Lama. But the yogi up on the hill, of all the yogis there, and there were some very accomplished ones, His Holiness picked Geshe Rapnin. He said, please, you teach these Westerners. So as I think I mentioned earlier, he became known as the Hippie Lama. Hippie Lama. Because most of the Westerners there looked like hippies. And he was the Lama who was willing to teach the hippies. There's nothing hippie-ish about him. But, um, so he gave his first teaching and I was there. And so maybe, a, maybe 12, 15, 15, 15 of us gathered sitting on the floor, on this dirt floor in this little cow shed. And then about once a week, then he would give us these teachings. And we'd all crouch together in this little tiny shed and then just writing notes, writing notes. It was wonderful. So he was, in terms of the yogi, he was my first kind of real meditation instructor that really was living as a yogi at that time. Geshe Ngam Taiki was an accomplished meditator himself. But I remember when I started receiving more one-on-one -on -one instruction, 
quite early from Geshe Rapten, the yogi on the hill. I remember the very first in, instructions, meditation teachings he gave me that were just for me, okay? Alan, this is for you. He said, I want you to focus on two themes right from the very beginning. And one is meditate and really deliberately linger on the reality of your own precious human life and how extremely precious it is, this life with all the leisure, all the opportunity for practicing Dharma, where the whole highway of where, from where you are right now to perfect enlightenment of a Buddha, the highway is just stretched right out, right out in front of you. There's no impediments. There it is in all the circumstances for following the path from here to Buddhahood in one lifetime are now in front of you. That doesn't happen very often. Did you actually encounter teachers who are qualified to teach you every step of the path and it's all there presented to you and all the circumstances are such that you, you will not be thrown in prison for practicing Dharma. I arrived in 71. If I'd been in Tibet, I would have been thrown in prison for saying, Om Mani Padme So they didn't have the freedom, right? And there are many other places no such freedom. The Soviet Union, Mongolia at that time, I think quite difficult to practice Dharma in any visible way. But having all the freedoms, all the opportunities, he said, focus on this, dwell on this, recognize the extraordinary rarity and preciousness of the life you have right now. It was as if he was saying, this is the life you've been waiting for. For countless lifetimes in the past, it came to this one, this one. Recognize what you've got now so that you really recognize it and take full advantage of it. Because this doesn't come along every day or every lifetime. So that was one point. And the other point, which is now why I'm mentioning this whole story, he said, meditate on equanimity. He said, meditate on equanimity. All of the problems you encounter with people all stem from a lack of equanimity. All stem from, I like this one, I don't like this one. Attachment and aversion, attachment, aversion, and indifference. This person just doesn't matter. This person matters, this person makes me happy, this person matters, this makes me unhappy. This person should go away, this person should stay, you, whatever. <laughs> so, those were his initial instructions. I think it was good advice. So, we have some very juicy questions here, uh, but right now, as we're just going into this fourth immeasurable, any questions about this particular practice? Or is it quite clear? We just move on. Okay, good. Now we have content questions. So I'll just take these just in random order. Um, could I please comment on this type of breathing, two inhalations, two, six exhalations in supine position? It feels like the system doesn't want to breathe in. It's a very good question. Uh, may, I, may I say the name of the person who asked, wrote the question? Thank you. Bahulia. Bahula. Bahulia. So sure, it's a very good question and it's also common. And that is in the supine position, your whole system is just getting to go totally relaxed and it's unimpeded. That's the beauty of the supine position. That is, if you're lying on your back, then your belly is compressed, your chest is compressed. So that can impede the breathing somewhat, right? You're lying, and then with the arms open, and my, yoga t my primary yoga teacher, Iyengar, suggested 30 degrees out, palms up. And it's a subtle thing, but it rotates here, it just opens up a little bit more. So if you have enough room, palms out to the side, and so everything's open, just wide open. 
And so in that, in, that, in that posture, then the whole system is able to relax, but it's good to know there's no impediment. There's nothing pressing down your belly, your diaphragm, your chest. There's just nothing stifling you at all. It's just wide open space, right? And so in that posture especially, it often happens that you breathe out, I just breathe out again. And then it came in. But it came in very shallow. I didn't need to... And at no point did I feel, oh, I'm gasping for breath. I'm out of breath. At no point. There was no fear, no anxiety. It was just totally relaxed. Just, there was no need for breathing. And just breathed out. And what's happening in my experience, because I've experienced this, I think, thousands of times, is just a gentle unraveling, an uncoiling, an unknotting. And so just don't force it. There's nothing to fear, bearing in mind, you got through the night, you know, without, without sniffing, without trying to pull the air in. So just trust the body. You don't have to trust me in this regard. What do I know about your body? But your body knows how to breathe really well. It's gotten you this far. You've never strangled once. While in, in, while in deep asleep, right? So trust your own body, your whole body and mind, this system, that it knows how to breathe. And if you're there wide open and you're not in any way contracting or holding the breath, then if the breath doesn't need to flow in, just wait until it's, wait until it's given. And then it will, and, and it will go, and this is called settling the breathing in its natural rhythm. The rhythm is not imposing on it like when I was doing calisthenics. You know, that's not a natural breathing. That was a forced, rhythmic breathing that I imposed, thinking I know how to breathe better than body does. Well, that's not likely. I don't know how to digest better than the body does. I don't know how to pump blood better than the body does. Why should I think I know how to breathe better than the body does? And so what I'm saying here is just trust your body, relax totally into it, and let, and what you'll find over time is the whole system balances out. So on occasion, there may be really long out-breaths and then maybe no in-breath for a while. And then just a short in-breath. And on other occasions, the breath may just flow out quite quickly and then come in. So deep or shallow, fast or slow, pause after the out-breath or no pause, just release into it with no hope, no fear, no desire, no preference. And what you're doing is you're watching your body balance itself out, okay? by way of the breathing, which is closely related with prana and the whole nervous system, the prana system. The analog here is settling the mind in its natural state. And you see that the thoughts, emotions do not come rhythmically like soldiers marching in line, right? They come in clusters, they come in bunches, and then there's nothing much happening. A big strong emotion arises, then it's emotionally pretty flat. Desire arises, then not much desire, then more thoughts, and then not much thoughts. It's the same. And that's exactly what we're doing in settling the mind in its natural state. We're just letting it be, being totally present with it, but not trying to manipulate, not trying to alter, to adjust, just being present. And then watching the mind uncoil itself, unravel, and so forth, and gradually settle into the substrate. Okay? And in a similar fashion, as you do that along the trajectory of shamatha, what's happening to your pranas? They're balancing out, they're converging in on the center, and then they're coming right up the center, 
and they come into the heart chakra. And when you are the pranas associated with mind, when they really converge, they draw together and converge at the heart chakra, that's when your mind is slipped into substrate consciousness. So when you achieve shamatha, your, pran your pranas will converge there. Okay? Good. Thank you for sharing your question. That was David's request for an announcement, which we did this morning. That's a good one. I'll get to it just in a second. This one looks long, but it's actually shorter than it appears. Uh, so, related to the, <coughs> excuse me, the, I guess it was a Dharma talk yesterday, the, the explication or discussion of a remorse, how it differs from guilt, focusing on the deed, not the person. How does this apply to deeds of omission? Omission. And is this a reification? I think not. No, there are deeds that is misdeeds of commission, where we really do something that's really harmful, maybe out of craving, out of selfishness, anger, jealousy, whatever, but we do something and it's injurious, obviously. A misdeed of commission. And then there are misdeeds, and they clearly are misdeeds of omission, where really morally we're called upon to do something, to help out in some way, and we don't. We turn a blind eye, we say, well, I'm busy, or I just don't want to, that's not my business, or what have you. And so there was, there was really kind of a moral responsibility. Mothers for children, there's an obvious one, right? And how many other cases where there's someone in distress, you could help, and you don't, right? Or, yeah, so are there, yeah, this is in Buddhism as well as, I think, in just general understanding of ethics. Both of these are equally real. This is not simply a case of reification. And so here an, an example was given. Um, and so, without reading everything here, it is a rather long note, uh, what to be done then? And are these, are, is remorse still appropriate? The answer is yes, definitely. When we recognize that by an act of omission, that is by not doing something, suffering was continued or someone who really needed some help or could have really, really benefited from an act of friendship you know, an act of loving kindness, didn't receive it, and therefore was left alone, isolated, and without the help needed. Then to feel remorse for that as one's sensitivity increases. Oh, by the way, uh, let's see. Yes, may, may I say who? Yes, it's Sarah, thank you. So it's a very good question. Yeah, so Sarah, right back there. Um, so the same four remedial powers are still appropriate, the same four purificatory powers. A feeling remorse, I could have done something, I didn't, I was just so maybe bound up in I me mine or whatever reason, or maybe I just didn't like the person. So it was, it was aversion, it was whatever. But for whatever reason, feeling the remorse is absolutely authentic. It is a way for purifying. So the, a major part of this is it doesn't become a habit. That is, the act of remorse is to break a habit. The act of authentic remorse is to break a habit. Some people really cruise through life with just... In Christianity, they call them sins of omission. Um, I think I won't mention a name, but there's one immensely wealthy person. Just leave it this way. There's an immensely wealthy person who's living in a very impoverished country. And from what I heard, this person doesn't give a dime. Just doesn't give a dime. You know. And has gotten to be so immensely wealthy because the person is so just selfish. You know, just by giving one-tenth of this person's wealth could alleviate so much suffering. Doesn't bother. He's just looking at his bank account getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Went up by billions last year. When the economy was slipping, this person just jacked it up and 
I won't say anything more. I don't want to focus on a particular person. That's not the point. But that is a sin of omission. It would be no sacrifice for this person at all to really do some wonderful things in the world. Doesn't bother. That's a sin of omission. That's a habit. And so to recognize sooner, hopefully for this person sooner rather than later, hey, I could still have all the houses I want, all the cars I want. Even if he gave away 90% of his money, he would still have everything he could possibly desire in this lifetime and doesn't give a dime. That's really tragic. And so the Dalai Lama has asked about this, you know, commented, not asked, but he's commented on this, about the fabulously wealthy. And he, kind of, he raises the question, is it even ethical to be so wealthy when there's so much need in the world? And he asks simple questions, how many rooms can you be in at a time? You know, in your mansion, how many rooms can you be in? How many meals can you eat? Now, if you're a billionaire, a multi, does we want to eat 16 meals a day and just retch after each one, you know, you know. Apparently, they did that in ancient Rome. You know, eat and retch, eat and retch, so you can just kind of eat more and develop a big bucket of vomit at the end of the day. And so, what I what I would say in short is it's the same, it's the same, and so the same kind of things. Yes, in terms of remedial powers, cultivating loving kindness, absolutely, cultivating wisdom, seeing. This is in no way responsible. This is not a meaningful life. This is not a good life to go through one's, li- through one's life without caring. And in terms of karma, I've asked about this. This came up a long time ago, maybe with Geshe Taige. But are there any re- karmic repercussions? If now, just to speak within fr- straightforward Buddhist framework, what, are there any karmic repercussions of a, of a deed of omission, a misdeed of omission? And the answer is com- definitely yes, and it's kind of obvious. I didn't make this up. I mean, it's a straight transmission. But um, let's, for example, let's, let's imagine, for example, that you're really poor. You're really poor, and you come to somebody's house, and you knock, say, you know, just a classic situation where you actually are a beggar, and you come to somebody's house and knock on the door. Nowadays, I suppose that's illegal in many places. Um, but you do it, and the person says, I- I'm sorry, but um, no, we just don't have anything spare. And you have plenty to spare, but you just don't give it. And the person goes away and you have food rotting in the refrigerator, but you just didn't want to be bothered. Beggars often don't look so nice. They maybe smell bad. And they're bothered, they're a nuisance. And I'm, I'm, I'm really right in the middle of my television, television program here. Why are you bothering me? Go find somebody else to pester. Go to the government. You know, I, I want to get back to my television program. And so, so there's, a, there's a deed of omission. You didn't smack the person, you didn't say anything rude, you just said, sorry, no, no, can't, no can do, no can do. What's the karmic consequences of that? You're going to be the beggar. <laughs> You're going to be the person in the future life. When that karma matures, you'll be the person knocking on the door and you will get nothing. What goes around comes around. We have so many ways of saying that. But that is the karmic repercussion, that you will receive the misdeeds of omission by others. They could help you and they won't. There it is. Very simple. Okay? Jolly good. And the final one, uh, you can probably see from the stationery, uh, who wrote this, but I'll, but it is, I, I've read through it, it is a pertinent question, and it um, deserves, I think, a fairly rich answer. It's a follow-up question to the talk yesterday about the, this overview of the path. And this person said, I've been wondering for some time, what exactly is the difference between nirvana and rikpa? Nirvana, the end point of path to liberation, rikpa, pristine awareness. I mentioned yesterday that upon achieving vipassana, or stream entry, achieving Vipassana and stream entry are not the same thing, um, that one is quite close to realizing Rikpa. Yeah, but not the same as stream entry. 
uh, between classical Theravada and Tibetan Mahayana. Uh, so, what are the mapping equivalences between classic Theravada and Tibetan Mahayana paths? Is there anything out there like a diagram on the back that correlates these attainments? So, basically, yeah, a good kind of a flowchart or something like that, or you know, map. So, it's a very good question. May I say the name? Noah. Yeah, it's an excellent question. So good. So there's Noah. That's Noah's question. Um, One can gain authentic insights by way of vipassana practice into, for example, impermanence. That is vipassana practice, gaining a direct insight into impermanence, subtle impermanence. That's one of the fruits of vipassana. To gain that realization doesn't mean you become a stream enterer. You may gain realization into the nature of dukkha, nature of non-self. You may now, as we move more into the Mahayana context, but which has very clear roots in the Pali Canon, so I can show you where, teachings on emptiness, and it's also there, quite interesting, and very much in the same vein as the Madhyamaka, which I found quite fascinating. So the Madhyamaka, this whole theme of the absence of inherent nature, the emptiness of phenomena, is there in the Pali Canon. It's just not as fully developed as we see, for example, in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. So one may have insights in any of those, including some genuine insight, some real taste, some knowing of Vipassana. That, doesn't, that does not necessarily mean that when you gain that first insight that you become stream enterer. It does not mean that. Okay? There are many, many glimmerings, many breakthroughs before that. Uh, I will now speak with a lot of confidence from this Indo-Tibetan, because the Tibetans were not laudably, not very creative. They didn't make up their own tradition. Um, and so one of the biggest misnomers in the history of Buddhist scholarship is to call Tibetan Buddhism Lamaism. Lamaism. <laughs> That's like calling a Hindu ashram, or Hinduism, Guruism. You know, it's just, it's silly. Um, but also I noted in the recent coverage of the earthquake in Tibet, they refer to the monasteries as lamasaries. Uh, lamasaries, lamasaries. <laughs> it's just weird. Like, okay, whatever. Um, but it's really absolutely rooted in India. From this Indo-Tibetan current, which is really classic, mainstream Mahayana Buddhism, you achieve stream entry if you're following the, not just the Theravada, but if you're following the path to your own liberation, to your own nirvana, your individual liberation. That is indeed the pursuit of Theravada, but there were 17 other schools with the same pursuit, and they differed in subtle ways in terms of interpretation of Vinaya and so forth. But Theravada is the, is the big standing one uh, in Southeast Asia, and the corresponding one is the Savastavada, which is carries on into Tibet, into Mongolia, and so forth. So Mugi is a monk. His, monk, his monastic vows are from the Vinaya. Vinaya is, is core teachings. So one could say Hinayana, if you like. But it's not Theravada, it's Savastavada. Savastavada. So, brief background there. But speaking now from this whole current, this north-south current from India, Tibet, Mongolia, and so forth, you achieve stream entry when you gain a complete fusion of shamatha vipassana and your direct realization is that of nirvana, the unconditioned, which in this Indo-Tibetan current is equivalent to emptiness. In the Prasangaka view, the Madhyamaka Prasangaka view, emptiness is equivalent to nirvana. Nirvana is emptiness, emptiness is nirvana, and when you have a direct, non-conceptual, unmediated, non-dual realization of nirvana, with a total fusion of shamatha vipassana, that's when you're a stream enter. In other words, the bars raise very high. Okay? So, 
And then, so you realize nirvana. Does that mean you're an arhat? No. But you realize nirvana, but that initial, that realization with this fusion of shamadeva vipassana does not completely purify or dispel from your mind stream all mental afflictions. And therefore, in this classic early Buddhist sequence, you have stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, finished. Arhat. Okay? But all of that is simply going back to the well, going back to the realization of nirvana, letting that realization flow into one's interactive way of life in between sessions, back to realization of nirvana, coming back until one analogy given is taking some very soiled, very soiled piece of clothing and putting it on an old-fashioned washboard and going in and out, in and out, and scrubbing away, and first to come out the coarse stains. And then you scrub more and come out the medium stains. And finally you've scrubbed it until it's just immaculate and it's just stain-free. Then you're in our hut. So this in and out, in and out is going into this meditative equipoise, the nyamsha, meditative equipoise in the realization of the unconditioned, nirvana, emptiness. And then coming back and engaging with this world of this and that and then back and, until the job's done and your mind is completely free of mental affliction. Okay? So for the Indo, whole Indo-Tibetan current, it's very clear that to achieve stream entry, you must have achieved shamatha, and this isn't exactly the fusion of shamatha and vipassana. The, shamata is, the, the vipassana is the blade that cuts through and realizes emptiness, and the shamatha provides you with the stability and vividness to sustain that with extra, extraordinary clarity, hence stability and vividness. And it's an only in that way that the, we really get to the very root of mental afflictions. So that's the answer to the first part of the question. With respect to the second, I'll first tell you what is simply fact, and then I'll tell you an interpretation. I'll try to make a very clear demarcation. As I was doing the research for my latest book, Mind and the Balance, I went back and checked out uh, a short discourse by the Buddha, in which he does, and I, have, and I, I cite the source, in, it's from the Pali Canon, it's very clear, and I've also consulted with some top scholars about it to try to get as clear an understanding as I could of it, because it's really quite an interesting one. And it's not often talked about. And that is, in this passage, I can't quote it verbatim, uh, but in this passage, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha does address the question, what happens to an arhat when an arhat dies? On other occasions, and bear in mind, he, he, was, not, he was not a computer printout that gave the same answer to, every, to the same question every time it came up, like he was just programmed, oh, question 326, blah, 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 blah. It was always contextual. It was always relative to who's asking the question. And he gave different answers depending on who, not not helter-skelter, but it was always very relative to the person who was asking the question. Well, there there was an occasion when he addressed this issue. What becomes of the mind? What becomes of an arhat when arhat dies? Right? And what is stated in all the, these early teachings of the Buddha, the early recording teaching of the Buddha, is that the five skandhas, form, feelings, discernment or recognition, and then a whole array of mental formations or process, mental processes, and then consciousness itself, including the five sensory but also mental consciousness, the five skandhas or khandhas in Pali. These basically, th- this is the fabric of our being. There's no part of you as a human being that doesn't fall into, into one or more of those categories. That's what we're made out of, right? The five skandhas. Well, when an arhat passes, while if you achieve arhat, if you should achieve arhatship, when you, if you should become an arhat when you're 
50. At that point, your mind is completely and irreversibly free, totally, of all mental afflictions. And that is, no matter what happens to you, there is simply zero possibility that you will respond with craving, with hostility, or with delusion, or any derivative mental afflictions. It doesn't matter what happens. But those scenes have been burnt. They and will never give rise to mental affliction. Just not going to happen. You're completely free, and therefore you're completely free of all the suffering that comes from it. Right? So let's imagine you achieve that at, what did I say, 50? Let's imagine you live for another 30 years. So you die at the nice medium age of 80. Well, during those, 50, those 30 years, from 50 to 80, you still have Noah's body, both feelings and so forth. You're not devoid of feelings. You still have feelings, discernment or recognition. You still have all these mental formations. You still have consciousness. And all of your five skandhas that you have, that you have through the whole course of your life, before you achieve nirvana and after, all of those are, have been generated by, propelled by, karma from past lives. Configured by. Strongly configured by. Right? And you still have those skandhas. They're residual. They're still hanging in there even after you've achieved arhatship. Liberation, nirvana, right? So there they are. And so could you, still, could you still experience the ripening of karma after you've become an arhat? Yes, you can. And a very famous story here, I won't give the whole story, but Mogalanaputra or Malgalyayanaputra in Sanskrit, one of the principal disciples of the Buddha, extraordinary powers, I mean, paranormal abilities, amazing. He died by being beaten to death after he was an arhat. And he had powers that could have pulverized the people who came to beat him. But he checked, because he just dematerialized his body. When they came to kill him, he, he saw it. He had incredible clairvoyance. I'll just take this literally. You can take it any way you like. But this guy was, he was Merlin. You know, he was like a sorcerer to the nth degree. He could have done anything with these guys. They were just coming with their fists and maybe a stick or a hammer or something. I mean, you know, they were no threat. He could have done anything to them, but he's an arhat. He's not going to respond with hostility. And then he just saw when they, ca when they came to kill him, he said, ah, I see. A little bit of karma has to ripen. And he waited for them. And they came in and they beat him to death. That's how he died. Right? Now, the way he experienced pain would be radically different from the way we experience pain. Nevertheless, his karma ripened. Then it was finished. And that was it. Finished. And then from that point on, ever, never, ever again, does he experience the ripening of any karma? Now, what happened to Magalayana, or what would happen if you achieved, you know, arhatship when you're 50 and then die when you're 80, is at 80, you're about to become an arhat without residue. So, excuse me if this is not interesting to everybody, but I think it will be interesting for some people, and certainly at least for one. You were an arhat with residue at the age of 50. Residue is you still have the five skandhas, that was produced by previous karma, and you can still have karma ripening, but you're not creating any fresh karma. From the time that you're a stream enterer, according to this Indo-Tibetan current, from the time that you're a stream enterer, you have, from the time that you have direct perception of emptiness or nirvana, from that point, you're never cultivating, creating any more propulsive karma that will throw you into future life. Dembatona pembame. Dembatona pembame. Once you've, seen once, once you've seen reality, there is no propulsion. Right. Classic aphorism. Oh. But from the age of 50 to 80, you're an arhat with residue. Residue. You can still experience ripening of karma, and you still have those five skandhas. But then you die. You die completely fearlessly, of course. There's no pain, nothing. It's just releasing. And at that point, all five of your skandhas are terminated. 
including consciousness. All five. Five sensory and mental consciousness. The stream has cut. The guillotine has come down on the continuum of all five of your skandhas. And they'll never be resuscitated. They'll never be generated again by karma or klesha. Okay? Absolute. And the Buddha was really clear on this point. Some modern popularizers of Buddhism have tried to ease around that. And they're just wrong. I mean, it's so clear that this is the case. Guillotine on all five skandhas. No more ever any mental afflictions. But now, wait a minute. If your consciousness, your mental consciousness, let alone sensory, but if the continuum of mental consciousness has now been severed, then why isn't nirvana just sheer, flat-out, total obliteration and annihilation? Total, absolute cessation. And the Buddha refuted that. Even though some people, again, mistakenly think that arhat without residue just means you become nothing. It's a complete mistake. It's not an interpretation. That's just fact. Not true. But how could it not be true if your continuum of consciousness has been severed, terminated, will never come back again. And the Buddha addressed that. The Buddha addressed that. And he said, for an heart after the residue is finished, there's no more residue. Then he referred to an unborn dimension of consciousness. Unborn and unceasing. Unborn, undying. And he referred to it as non-manifesting. That's a very close translation. Invisible, non-manifesting, non-manifestive. Not obvious, not appearing, not evident. Not evident would be fine. Unborn, unconditioned, undying, non-manifestive. And that's what's left over. So a dimension of awareness, now bearing in mind in the Theravada, based upon the Pali Canon, there's the coarse mind, of course. Then there's the bhavanga, into which your mind dissolves when you're at the death point. So again, very strong parallel with the Dzogchen interpretation of, of the substrate consciousness. So when you die, your last moment of being, when you're actually dead, all that's left is a bhavanga. That's the continuum that carries on. Into the bardo, there are also references to the antarabhava in the Pali Canon. And that's often, often ignored or even refuted, which is really quite bizarre. Because I, again, I show exactly the sources where the Buddha speaks about it in some detail and describes what occurs in the bardo, in the Pali Canon, you know? And there has to be a continuity, and the continuity is the bhavanga, a.k.a., also known as continuum of subtle consciousness, substrate consciousness. Well, when an arhat dies, your coarse mind, finished. Bhavanga, finished. Terminated, right? Third dimension, unborn, undying. That dimension is still there. And that, that unborn, unconditioned dimension of awareness, what does it experience? Because it's consciousness. It must be conscious of something. Immutable bliss. Immutable bliss. Unconditioned bliss. Not arising independence upon causes and conditions. And it experiences non-dually nature of ultimate reality. The old dharmadhatu. Everything I've said thus far is just flat out, this is what it says. There, there was really no interpretation there at all. I, I can assure you the sources and you can see whether I, I did add some Alan Wallaceism here. I would say that's what it said, right? So from the Buddha's own teachings and the Pali Canon, there is that assertion. Now consider this, okay, so end, of, end of 
I'm just telling the facts. Now I'm going to give an interpretation or think of, I'm thinking about it. But now this is me thinking about what I just told you is there and you can see it, read it for yourself. If you die at the age of 80, right on your birthday, and one day later, you are that arhat, but all that's left is this unconditioned, unborn, uncreated awareness. And that, of course, is timeless because it's not in a continuum of time. It's not flowing through time. It's unborn, uncreated, out of time, and it's not local, and it's unconditioned, and it's the nature of immutable bliss. Uh, one day after you died, if the consciousness that, after all, is your consciousness, if that was unborn one day after you die, that means it wasn't born the day you died because it's unborn. If it wasn't born the day you died, it must have been there the day before you died because it's unborn. If it's born, then you can say, oh, it just started up the day you died, but it's not born. So as it was unborn the day after you died. It was unborn the day you died. It was unborn the day before you died. And one more point, this isn't somebody else's consciousness. You didn't get rid of yours and get God's or Buddha's or Indra or Vishnu. You didn't get somebody else's consciousness. There's absolutely no grounds for believing that. In other words, if that dimension of consciousness was present one day before you became an arhat, it must have been also present one day before you became stream enterer. And it must be present right now because it's unborn. Now that's reasoning. That's reasoning from the Pali Canon. Now we go over to Dzogchen. Here there's an assertion of an unborn, unceasing dimension of consciousness of the nature of immutable bliss by nature luminous, non-local, atemporal. And of course it realizes the nature of ultimate reality. It realizes Dhammadhatu. So we can either say there are two of them in there, you know, that are twins, you know, which gets a little bit crowded to my mind. Uh, it's really weird. This is your this is your Pali this is your Pali Theravada unconditioned consciousness, and this is your Mahayana unconditioned Zosha. That just gets really too bizarre for me. So this is interpretation clearly, but I have to look at this and say, look, the descriptions are so similar that how could that be anything other than Rikpa, right? In which case, then we have the essence of Dzogchen there in the Pali Canon. But now we ask another question. Now this again is interpretation. This is opinion. Does this mean that the Arhat following death has realized Rikpa? Yeah, it does. There's nothing else left. What is the, what is the Arhat after death realizing? Dharmadhatu, which is same as emptiness, same as Nirvana. With what awareness is this Arhat after death realizing Rikpa or unconditioned consciousness? And of course, it's a non-dual realization. It's not, it's not emptiness over here and the awareness over here. It's non-dual. Hmm. Having realized Rikpa, is this person a Buddha? The answer is no. No, it's an Arhat. Not a Buddha. Has not manifested all the qualities of a Buddha. And no one says he's a Buddha. The Theravada tradition doesn't say that Arhat is a Buddha. The Mayana tradition does not say that Arhat is a Buddha. Nobody says he's a Buddha, right? But you say, wait a minute, he's realized Buddha mind, he's realized Rikpa, realized pristine, so why not? So I'm getting going, so now back to interpretation. The path of Dzogchen is a path 
really comprised of two major phases on the basis of your preliminary practices, developing bodhicitta, your shamatha, your vipassana, upon the basis of all of that, and maybe stage of completion and stage of regeneration, on the basis of all of that, then comes techu and tutgel, the breakthrough and the direct crossing over. Right? The minimum basis is shamatha and vipassana, with the preliminary practices supporting that. Right? Shamatha and vipassana, techu and tutgel, you know it well. The point of the techu of that phase, breaking through, breaking through, I need a right answer here, there's only one right answer, when you're in this phase of practice and you're authentically there, you know, you're, you're really authentically there, you are a qualified Dzogchen practitioner, you're well prepared, and now you are ripe for practicing the breakthrough and you're doing so. Let's imagine you've achieved shamadhi, you've achieved vipassana, right? And now you're practicing breakthrough. What are you breaking through? There's only one right answer. Substrate consciousness, yeah. You're breaking through substrate consciousness and it's clear and the source is prahivatra. I can show you the source. That's in my next book. I've got about four next books, but that's one of them. And so, yeah, you're breaking through the substrate consciousness. And that's very clear in the teachings of Padmasambhava. You settle on the substrate, you break through it, right? First settle your mind in its natural state, then break through it. But think you can bypass that and just start out with ordinary mind and break through your ordinary mind. Well, that, that just breaks you through to the substrate consciousness. So to bypass sub substrate I just sent, I wrote an article called, a short paper called no, short, no Shortcut to the Great Perfection. And the no shortcut is you can't skip shamatha and you can't skip vipassana. And I sent it off to Sogya Rinpoche. Sogya Rinpoche. Uh, who's, you know, one of the most prominent Dzogchen teachers we have. And his, uh, his assistant, Patrick Gaffney, wrote back, said Rinpoche was very pleased with it. He looked at all the sources I cited. Prahevajra, Dujum Lingba, Padmasambhava, Ledap Lingba. These are all, you know, five star. He said, your sources are really good. It's a good article. So that was nice to hear. That was nice to hear. So thank you, Rinpoche. Um, and so, if you are fully prepared to venture into the texture practice, what you're breaking through is the substrate consciousness and what you're breaking through too, of course, is Rikpa. But the practice and the fruit of that phase of practice is described with one very short phrase, jadarwa, jame or jadarwa, free of activity, inactive, devoid of activity. You're going into a primordial stillness, beyond coming and going, beyond one and many, beyond impermanent, impermanent, beyond all, it's called prapancha or trupa, trupa beyond all conceptual elaborations, beyond anything that can be conceived, you're transcending them all including coming and going. The, the method is one of utter release of all activity. And the fruit is realizing Rikpa in its profound, primordial, transcendent inactivity, stillness, primordial stillness. But there's a whole phase of Dzogchen beyond that, and that is the Tutgel, which we find, and the counterpart would be in the stage of completion practice, where now the idea is bring forth the full power, the full compassion, the full wisdom, all the qualities of Buddha mind, make them manifest, draw from this primordial stillness and make it, make it manifest, the dynamism. That is, if Buddhahood were simply primordial stillness, if that were the culmination, then the Buddha having achieved enlightenment would have sat under his Bodhi tree 
and then died, he would not have moved. He would just be enjoying primordial stillness, enjoying it, immutable bliss, by just, and then he'd die of old age. And nothing would have happened. He would never have gotten up and walked to Saranat and done all the other deeds of a Buddha. And so, and what he, he didn't only walk there, but over the course of his life manifested and manifested compassion, wisdom, extraordinary powers, and so forth and so on. And that's simply the historical Buddha, let alone speaking of Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nimanakaya. Sambhogakaya, Nimanakaya, all about manifestation, coming out into the world and living up to this noble prayer of Shantideva for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain, and so on. That Buddha mind is dynamic, inexhaustibly dynamic, and moved by compassion. So a person following the Mahayana path, whether just following the straight Sutrayana path for three countless eons, following the practice stage of generation and completion, following the path of Tekja and Turkel, is not only ascertaining that dimension of awareness through Vajrayana practice, through Mahamudra, through Dzogchen, not only ascertaining it, but then draws it forth so it is fully and spontaneously present. And so it's called Hlundup, spontaneous presence. And that is these qualities spontaneously appear in the world, and by the way, effortlessly. So only, as I keep on emphasizing relaxation, only a Buddha has achieved the perfection of relaxation. Only a Buddha, right? So keep on working. More relaxation. Until you're a Buddha, more relaxation, right? So there's one final point that might be interesting. Ah, yeah. The Arhat, Arhat Noah, at the age of 55, You've got another 25 years to walk, walk around and do stuff. You've realized nirvana. You can tap into it. But bear in mind, as an arhat walking around, you still, you, there's no more purification to, to be done, but you still have, you're living in two worlds. And that is, you walk around and you eat, maybe you teach, maybe you do various things to be of service, you help in any way you can, and then you go back into meditative equipoise, you just let your mind descend into nirvana. It's just you know, going, going back home. And then... You come out, you do the various things, you go back in, you're still going back and forth, even as an arhat. There's nothing more to purify, but you're just going back home and then coming out and manifesting in the world. Here's an interpretation. Again, I always want to be clear when I'm just saying what I, what I, the conclusions I've drawn. The arhat, arhat know at the age of 55, you're an arhat already, you've completely fathomed nirvana, you've realized it. Have you realized rikpa? No. No. And the basis for this is his whole, uh, statements by His Holiness Dalai Lama. When he's, com- when he's compared the realization of emptiness by a person on who's practicing stage of completion, utterly accomplished in stage of generation and then stage of completion, right? That person, accomplished practitioner on stage of completion, an accomplished practitioner of Dzogchen, as opposed to a person who is simply practicing Sutrayana, okay? The six perfections. The, the emptiness being realized is the same. There are no subtle and coarse emptiness. Emptiness is ultimate reality. But the mind that is apprehending emptiness differs in subtlety. And so this happens explicitly on stage of generation, especially stage of completion practice, where the coarse mind dissolves into subtle mind, subtle mind dissolves into very subtle mind. And it's with very subtle mind that you realize emptiness, dhammadhatu. That very subtle mind is rikpa. So the accomplished Vajrayana practitioner in a stage of completion is realizing emptiness with Rikpa, and of course realizes Rikpa, right? 
Likewise, the accomplished Dzogchen practitioner who has achieved tekchu, the breakthrough, realizes emptiness, definitely, realizes with what awareness? With rikpa. Very subtle mind realizing emptiness. So it's the same, whether stage of completion or Dzogchen practitioner. The quality of awareness is the same. It is unconditioned awareness. It is rikpa realizing nirvana, dhammadhatu, and so forth. But an arhat, or a person following simply the sutrayana, the bodhisattva path, with no vajrayana, no dzogchen, and so forth, still realizes emptiness, still, rises, still realizes nirvana, but not with a very subtle mind. Realizes, yes, but with medium level. Coarse, subtle mind, probably subtle mind. So the, that which you're realizing is the same, but that with which you're realizing it differs. So arhat no at the age of 55, realize emptiness? Yes. Dhammadhatu? Yes. Nirvana? Yes. Realizes with what? With the continuum of consciousness that was conditioned by your previous life. With that continuum of mental consciousness, you're realizing emptiness. Which means you're realizing emptiness, but you're not realizing rikpa. Only at death, when that continuum of your mental consciousness is cut and all that's left and finally like a veil has been removed through death the veil of the coarse consciousness is removed because you died and all that remains now is rikpa and so the arhat after death realizes emptiness nirvana with rikpa but isn't a buddha because it's not fully displayed so then metaphorically poetically poetically it said that the Arhat Noah now, two years after his death, but how can we say, from your side, you're timeless. So you're not clicking away. Boy, it's been a year already. Time flies when you're an Arhat, you know? <laughs> no such thing. There's no time, so it doesn't fly. In that timeless, timeless abode, it is said poetically, metaphorically, that a ray of light is sent from the Buddha's heart to strike, your to strike, your to strike you and arouse you with the awareness you're not finished yet. And it's time for you, not out of the power of karma and klesha, but out of the aspiration to achieve enlightenment and finish the job. That it's time to come back again, take form again, and become Buddha, to come to the culmination of the path. So you come out of nirvana, and you re-embody, not, again, not propelled by karma or klesha, but by propelled by the realization there's more to be done. And then you finish the job. And fundamentally, what you have to finish, having already achieved nirvana, realized nirvana, having no mental afflictions at all, what you really have to do is manifest rikpa and completely manifest all the qualities of rikpa and become a Buddha. Okay? That's my best shot. So I hope I made it clear where I'm simply reporting what was said and where my interpretation. Where it was said, I could be mistaken, but that would mean I'm illiterate. I just couldn't read it, whatever. So that's possible too. But then you can read the sources and you can see whether I reported accurately. The rest is interpretation. Obviously, I can be wrong there, but I'm giving you my best shot. Okay? Hola, so. Deep waters. Aha, and it's 6.20. Food is getting cold, so sorry.